Welcome to Poems for Company. I'm your host, Brian Dillon, and today's theme focuses on poems that offer advice in a direct way. Advice about when to have children and why, about what to eat, about how to interact with others, among other topics. From fairest creatures we desire increase. This is the first line to the first of 154 sonnets Shakespeare wrote in his sequence that seemed to have a built-in narrative plot. From fairest creatures we desire increase, with increase meaning reproduction or copy. The first 18 poems in Shakespeare's lengthy sonnet sequence are labeled the procreation sonnets. Presumably, an older male encourages a handsome, androgynous-looking young man to breed. Your appearance, young man, will fade soon, so make a copy of yourself, to crudely paraphrase the theme of these poems. In sonnet number three, the speaker advises the young man to stare in the mirror, the glass, and to take his advice. This is sonnet number three by Shakespeare. Look in thy glass, and tell the face thou viewest, now is the time that face should form another, whose fresh repair, if now thou not renewest, thou dost beguile the world, unbless some mother. For where is she so fair, whose uneared womb disdains the tillage of thy husbandry? Or who is he so fond will be the tomb of his self-love to stop posterity? Thou art thy mother's glass, and she in thee calls back the lovely April of her prime. So thou, through windows of thine age, shalt see, despite of wrinkles, this thy golden time. But if thou live remembered not to be, die single, and thine image dies with thee. That's Shakespeare's sonnet number three. The speaker presumes the young man is already enamored of himself, already inclined to stare into the glass. The speaker also presumes every young woman would gladly be intimate with him and carry his child. For where is she so fair, whose uneared womb disdains the tillage of thy husbandry? The speaker doesn't care about the identity of the prospective mother, or whether she will marry the young man, nor even if any emotional intimacy may develop between her and the young man. Don't be a fool, the speaker says, and create a tomb of your self-love. Don't waste your seed. The young man's face is a copy of his mother's face highlighting the androgynous quality that so moves this apparently older speaker. Thou art thy mother's glass, and she in thee calls back the lovely April of her prime. 
most curiously, the speaker neglects that the child may look like its mother, as this young man does. What does that androgynous young guy think of this advice? Is he flattered? Annoyed? We don't get his response in Shakespeare's sonnets. A contemporary poem details unwelcome advice, again in regard to the most personal issue, whether and when to procreate. The poem, titled Useful Advice, uses one term I had to look up, donkey, that's D-O-N-G-Q-U-A-I, which refers to an herb sometimes called female ginseng that some use as a remedy for menstrual cramps. No scientific evidence supports the notion that it boosts fertility. This is Catherine Tuferiello's 2004 poem, Useful Advice. You're 37? Don't you think that maybe it's time you settled down and had a baby? No wine? Does that mean happy news? I knew it. Hey, are you sure you two know how to do it? All Dennis has to do is look at me, and I'm knocked up. Some things aren't meant to be. It's sad, but try to see this as God's will. I've heard that sometimes when you take the pill... A friend of mine got pregnant when she stopped working so hard. Why don't you two adopt? You'll have one of your own then, like my niece. At work, I heard about this herb from Greece. My sister swears by donkey. Want to try it? Forget the high-tech stuff. Just change your diet. It's true. Too much caffeine can make you sterile. Yoga is good for that. My cousin Carol. They have these ceremonies in Peru. You mind my asking, is it him or you? Have you tried acupuncture? Meditation? It's in your head. Relax. Take a vacation and have some fun. You think too much. Stop trying. Did I say something wrong? Why are you crying? That's Catherine Tuferiello's poem, Useful Advice. That poem may seem humorous until it's not. Well, let's go back 2,000 years. In the final section of Metamorphoses, the ancient Roman author Ovid presents philosophical advice by Pythagoras, who makes this key point. Killing animals has a psychological effect on us. It prepares humans for killing other humans, and thus must be avoided. At the time Ovid wrote, Many people spent a significant portion of their lives in amphitheaters where the slaying of beasts was a main event, as Ovid's translator Charles Martin reminds us. 
also. Pythagoras asserts, Greek gods really don't want animal sacrifices. The divine powers don't want to be implicated in humans' crimes. If he were familiar with the Old Testament, presumably he would make the same argument to ancient Hebrews, as so many chapters in the Old Testament detail the procedures for pleasing their deity with sacrifices, starting with Abel's offering. And in the ancient world, the entrails of the sacrificed animals are interpreted as signs from the divine. So, in Ovid's Metamorphoses, Pythagoras, the ancient Greek mathematician and philosopher, promotes a diet that would bring more peace into our lives. Here are a couple of brief excerpts from his monologue. This is from the final book or section of Ovid's Metamorphoses, with Pythagoras holding forth in a lengthy monologue. Mortals, refrain from defiling your bodies with sinful feasting, for you have the fruits of the earth and of arbors, whose branches bow with their burden. For you the grapes ripen, for you the delicious greens are made tender by cooking. Milk is permitted you too, and thyme-scented honey. Earth is abundantly wealthy and freely provides you her gentle sustenance, offered without any bloodshed. Nor is it enough that man has committed such misdeeds. The gods were charged with them too, were believed to take pleasure in dealing death out to the labor-bearing young bullock, since that which makes him so pleasing is what will most harm him, a victim distinguished in figure and quite without blemish, his horns gilded, trailing bright ribbons, is led to the altar where he, without comprehending them, listens to prayers and observes the barley he helped to cultivate sprinkled between his horns, perhaps even sees in the basin held under his head by the priest, the knife-blade reflected a moment before his blood is spilled into the water. At once they tear out the guts from the still-living creature and scrutinize them in search of some heavenly purpose. So great is the human hunger to eat what's forbidden, you mortals will dare even to feed upon this. Don't you do it, I beg you. Pay close attention to my admonition, and when you devour the flesh of your fresh butchered cattle, taste it and know you are eating your labor's companion. That's from Book 15 of Ovid's Metamorphoses. And Pythagoras isn't through with his monologue at that point. His advice then takes a most curious turn. We'll hear just one final brief excerpt 
before I comment further upon it. Heaven and everything under it will take on new forms, as will the earth too, and everything here upon it, as even we will, for we are a part of it also, not merely bodies, but winged spirits, and able to shelter in beasts, to lodge in the breasts of cattle. Bodies, which once may have given refuge to parents or brothers or any joined to us by obligation, or men like ourselves, to be sure, should be safe and respected, not crammed into our guts. What a slippery slopey descends, who slits a calf's throat, able to listen unmoved to its piteous mooing, for he prepares himself to murder a human. Or who can butcher a kid, whose terrified bleeding so resembles the cries of our children? Or eat a chicken, whom we have fed from our hand? Is this less than a murder? How does it differ? What is the end that it leads to? Let the bull plow, and in time, let him die of old age. And let the sheep arm you against the freezing north wind. And let the goat give herself to the hands at her udders. Hang up your nets, nooses, snares, and artful deceptions completely. Do not betray the poor bird with a limed twig, nor drive the deer into nets with forms made of feathers, nor hide a treacherous dinner upon a barbed hook. Kill any that harm you, but make sure only to kill them. Don't stain your mouths with their blood. Be nourished more gently. Again, that's Pythagoras speaking in Ovid's final book from his work, Metamorphoses. Pythagoras firmly believes in metempsychosis, the, the concept that our souls are immortal and upon death enter into a new body, the notion that the hummingbird at your feeder might be somebody's grandmother, or the deer strolling down the street may be your former neighbor. Don't eat that steak, for it may be your lost loved one. Respect animals, he says. Don't cram them into our guts. Ovid wrote 2,000 years ago. Does he offer advice that still has merit today? Let's shift forward in time to 1910, when Rudyard Kipling published If, a poem that still resonates with British readers especially, who have judged it the best poem of all time. You might think of If as a kind of secular Sermon on the Mount. That is, it advises us on how to achieve absolute self-control. This is Rudyard Kipling's 1910 poem, If. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs, 
and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to, broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss, and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with sixty seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. That's Rudyard Kipling's poem, If. Born in India to British parents who sent him away to England on his own at age five to begin his education, Kipling's childhood was challenging. Presumably, he developed a stoic attitude toward his upbringing, such as the poem promotes. Admittedly, I was not accurate when I said the poem advises us. As the final line indicates, this advice is directed to young men. Kipling's own son, Jack, turned 13 the year the poem was published. And the poem sounds like paternal advice for Jack and other boys of the pre-First World War generation. Eventually... Jack failed to be admitted into the army due to poor eyesight. Kipling, who did walk with kings, as the poem references, took advantage of his award-winning author status and used back channels to get Jack into the army. Jack did not last long. He was killed in 1915 at the Battle of Luz. Shortly after his death, and perhaps with if in mind, Kipling wrote to a friend, It's something to have bred a man. The poem If is full of moral generalities. Can you bear to listen to statements you made twisted by others intent on hurting you, for example? 
even if Kipling's final lines indicate he had only young men in mind, anyone can reflect on these pieces of advice. A gender-based follow-up was published in 1931 by Elizabeth Lincoln Otis titled An If for Girls. In contrast to Kipling's moral generalities, Otis offers very specific advice. As you hear the poem, you might consider, does the advice Otis offers hold up roughly 90 years later? This is Elizabeth Lincoln Otis's poem, An If for Girls. If you can dress to make yourself attractive, yet not make puffs and curls your chief delight, if you can swim and row, be strong and active, but of the gentler graces, not lose sight. If you can dance without a craze for dancing, play without giving play too strong a hold, enjoy the love of friends without romancing, care for the weak, the friendless, and the old. If you can master French and Greek and Latin and not acquire as well priggish mean, if you can feel the touch of silk and satin without despising calico and jean, if you can ply a saw and use a hammer, can do a man's work when the need occurs, can sing when asked without excuse or stammer, can rise above unfriendly snubs and slurs, if you can make good bread as well as fudges, can sow with skill and have an eye for dust. If you can be a friend and hold no grudges, a girl whom all will love because they must. If sometime you should meet and love another and make a home with faith and peace enshrined and you its soul, a loyal wife and mother, You'll work out pretty nearly, to my mind, the plan that's been developed through the ages and win the best that life can have in store. You'll be, my girl, the model for the sages, a woman whom the world will bow before. That's Elizabeth Lincoln Otis's poem, An If for Girls. Learn to bake bread, swim, wield a saw. That seems to be good advice for young women and young men. Kipling's poem presented no instructions on forming relationships. Otis does. She says, enjoy the love of friends without romancing. That is, value your friendships without worrying about dating or establishing yourself as another's sole girlfriend. And in terms of requirements, Otis discourages slackers. In stanza two, she says, master French and Greek and Latin. Yikes! Most of us would be delighted to master any one of these or another language. 
That's a lot of pressure on any young woman or man. Naomi Shehab Nye, in her poem, Manage, cautions against being too hard on oneself and replies to the anxieties of a 17-year-old who expressed her anxieties to her. The 17-year-old feels horribly inadequate. And the speaker responds with advice. This is Naomi Shehab Nye's poem, Manage. She writes to me, I can't sleep because I'm 17. Sometimes I lie awake thinking I didn't even clean my room yet. And soon I will be 25 and a failure. And when I'm 50, oh, I write her back. Slowly, slow, clean one drawer, arrange words on a page, let them find one another, find you. Trust they might know something. You aren't living the whole thing at once. That's what a minute said to an hour. Without me, you are nothing. That's Naomi Shehab Nye's poem, Manage. Kipling had written, Fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. A metaphorical statement about using time wisely, not wasting it. Nye urges instead to slow down. Be realistic. Be kinder to yourself. Nye says, you aren't living the whole thing at once. That's what a minute said to an hour. Without me, you are nothing. And our half hour is nearly over. Thank you for listening. And perhaps we all need to hear ourselves when we issue any advice. Poems for Company will broadcast again next month at this same time, the fourth Monday of each month. You may go to kmun.org to find the podcast of this and other episodes, along with the list of the poems you have heard today. I also want to note that every second Monday of the month, at this same time, the show River Writers is broadcast. Like Poems for Company, podcasts of River Writers are available at kmun.org. Our theme music for Poems for Company is Philip Alberg's Going to the Sun from his CD Live from Montana, available at sweetgrassmusic.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>